Hill City. This is Hannah coming to you from a bit of a different location today on this Sunday morning. I am so excited that you're here with us. Even if we can't be together in person, at least we are together in spirit uh, in our living rooms. I know that's where I'll be sitting on Sunday morning watching the live stream and checking out the Facebook comments. So if you haven't already, join us on, on Facebook so that you can see those. Uh, the last few weeks, the last month or two has been crazy. And I know we keep saying that even though the church isn't a building, it's a people and we're serving God and we're following Jesus. I know all those things are true, but maybe for you in this moment, uh, those things have become a little stale. Maybe you're a little unsure of how that applies to your life right now. And I know when you hear things repeated over and over, like God is in control, it can get kind of cheesy and, and not really applicable to what you're dealing with. So we just want to take a moment and say, we recognize that everyone is going through some very different, but very hard struggles at the moment. Whether you are struggling with loneliness and isolation, or you're struggling with how to keep your kids occupied on this Sunday morning for 40 minutes so you can watch the sermon, or if you're struggling, uh, maybe you know someone who is sick or you are sick yourself. We just want to know, uh, we just want you to know that we are here with you, that we are praying for you and everyone in this community at Hill City, and that we want to know your requests. So even if it seems silly, even if your request doesn't seem as serious as people who are struggling in hospitals, please do share those with us because we would love to pray for you. We just ask that you type those even into the Facebook chat right now so that we can take some time and pray for you. And uh, with that in mind, let's get started. Uh, dear God, we just thank you for this time on this Sunday morning. Thank you that even though we are not meeting in a building, we are still your church. We're still the body of Christ. We are still gathering together with our family or with our friends even online to trust in you to make it known that in this time of craziness and darkness and sickness we still trust and believe that you are in control so we pray that you would bless our time together today and every day that you would equip us to love our neighbors in this very different time and that you would help us as we dig into the book of james i'm really excited that we are starting the book of james because it is kind of a neglected epistle in the New Testament. I don't know if you're familiar at, uh, with it at all, but a lot of people have kind of pushed it to the side in past history. So it's great that we are actually talking about it. Um, it's interesting because when we think about this time when everything is so crazy, it seems like unprecedented things are going on. It's really easy to imagine that nothing like this has happened before. But the truth is, God was not surprised by COVID. He was not surprised by what's happening right now. And the church that has been around for 2000 years has gone through things like this. The church has experienced struggles and suffering. The church has endured things that required patience. And for all these reasons, the book of James is really apt in this moment. So I'm really excited that we'll be learning so much from the book of James. John is gonna dive into chapter one in just a little bit, uh, but first we're gonna talk about some background. 
it's really interesting as I'm like staring straight at a camera right now that these videoed sermons are a lot like the epistles in the New Testament. James was writing to a community that was suffering, but he couldn't be there in person with them. He had to write a letter that was sent to them. And in the same way that we can't be in person with each other right now as Hill City, we are still able to gather and use the tools God's given us, this great technology, all these different formats to gather together and to learn. So the epistle of James has a lot in common, even with what we're doing today in sending you this sermon online. James's audience might have had every right in the world to feel abandoned and perplexed and isolated. And James writes them with very practical advice. He assures them of his affection for them and he talks to them about the path of discipleship, about what it takes to make a faith that works, uh, which is what we've titled this series. And like I said, I'm so excited to dive into it, but let's do some background work first. There are many theories about who wrote the book of James. There's a lot of scholars who debate the merits of those different theories. And the reason for all the debate is because the author only identifies himself by his name. He doesn't give much more detail. He was probably really well known to his audience, so there wasn't any reason to say, James, you know, that one James. Uh, so they knew who was writing it, but we now in our modern times debate it a little bit. Yet there's a lot of evidence from this letter to suggest that the majority view is correct, that the author of this book was James, the younger brother of Jesus. And we know that James was likely not a follower of Jesus during Jesus's earthly ministry. In fact, in the book of John, it's recorded that many of Jesus's siblings were very skeptical about his ministry, even poking fun at it a bit uh, when they tell him, oh, why aren't you going up to the festival to promote your new way? So we know that a lot of them probably didn't believe in Jesus at the time he was on the earth ministering. But it's likely that he, James, and several of his siblings did become part of the church after the resurrection and after they had maybe even had an in-person visitation with Jesus in his resurrected form. I want you to take a minute and imagine what it would be like to be Jesus's little brother. Can you imagine that for a minute? Many of you might not know that I come from a big family. There are seven siblings. And so even if you don't have seven, you probably know what the dynamic is like between older and younger siblings, unless you're an only child. And then you might've seen it in some of your friends. But there's this dynamic where you really admire and want to emulate your older sibling, but at the same time, you kind of hate them because they do everything better than you can do it. And it seems like you'll never catch up to them in life. And it can also seem like they're always taking charge. You know, when your kids, uh, I was an oldest sibling of the younger set of us. So I was always taking charge of the games and being the referee and probably being way too bossy. So there's that dynamic where the older sibling always seems kind of bossy and treats you like you're younger than you are and is trying to tell you what to do. If you can imagine that, you can kind of get into the mindset of what James might have felt towards his older brother, Jesus, for some of his life. 
Maybe that's why it was so hard to believe that he was the Messiah because he was actually perfect, not just your ideal uh, perfect brother or sister. In the same way, uh, we know that there were probably out of this world frustrations and jealousies going on, but in that way, it always made perfect sense to me why his siblings wouldn't believe he was the Messiah, because I can even imagine myself how I would be feeling uh, to think that, oh, this is the chosen one, my older brother, my older sister. On the other hand, I think it's very important that we don't imagine a boy Jesus, Jesus as a, as a child, as some sort of perfect angel. You know, he walked around with a halo over his head and his white robes were always spotless. And uh, maybe he had a little scroll to pull out and lecture people on a regular basis. Because Jesus wasn't like that. He was fully human. He probably rolled in the dirt and picked his nose and got yelled at by the crotchety neighbor next door. Uh, he was fully human. He was just a normal boy. He probably wrestled with his brothers. And maybe instead of the whole idea of perfection, it was this more than anything that might have discouraged his siblings from seeing him as the true Messiah because his childhood was normal. He grew up in backwoods Nazareth and became an apprentice as a stonemason or a carpenter. And for this reason, you can imagine James thinking, oh, Yeshua? We just grew up like normal kids in Nazareth of all places. Could he really be the Messiah? Yet we know that James did eventually believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe not until after his resurrection, but he believed enough to become a key leader in the church in Jerusalem. And it's likely that he wrote this letter of James to people from Jerusalem between the 40s and 60s AD, because he died in 62 AD, as it's recorded by some historians, stoned to death for his belief in Jesus. Some scholars who give an earlier date to James think that it could be the oldest text we have in the New Testament, predating even Paul's letters. The epistle is written in the form of a sermon, just like I'm giving now, or maybe it was several sermons that he grouped together to send to these people. It seems that he sent it to the 12 tribes dispersed. And from evidence we have throughout the book, it seems that he is writing to a primarily Jewish Christian audience, Jews who had converted or had found the fulfillment of their faith in Jesus as the Messiah and as God. Many think that these Jewish Christians were scattered abroad because of the persecution that's mentioned in Acts. In fact, in Acts 11:19, we get a reference to all the places that the Christians were scattered after the persecution began. This sent many people fleeing for their lives from Jerusalem, from people like Paul, who were determined to put them in prison or even put them to death. One of the most common jobs for people who were sent fleeing from Jerusalem into the surrounding area of Palestine was to work as a agricultural worker in the fields on some big farm. 
much like migrants to the agricultural areas of the U.S. today find work on farms, it was the same thing back then. And these Christians to whom James wrote were burdened and persecuted and taken advantage of by their employers. We find out that their employers were even keeping back their wages. They refused to pay them what they were due at the end of the day. In a time where you lived off of your daily wages and you didn't eat until you received those. I don't know, but that sounds a little familiar to me uh, with some employers you may be able to think of. Doesn't sound all that different from today's world when people are taken advantage of. From this situation, we get one of the biggest themes in the book of James, and that is money. Whether James is warning against favoritism towards the rich or warning the rich of how fleeting their riches are or even railing against those unjust employers, he makes it clear that God cares for the poor and for the oppressed and that he will judge those who worship money. For this reason, maybe, James has been neglected by Western readers because we don't feel comfortable as the privileged in reading a book to, to people who are so downtrodden. Another standout theme in this book is that of suffering and endurance. James continues to remind his audience that are suffering economically and spiritually, that their suffering is being used in the process of discipleship to produce steadfastness, a deep, enduring patience, or as scholar Elsa Tamez puts it, a militant patience. It's not a passive thing to have patience in the book of James. It is an active thing. It's engaged and determined. In our time, we might be able to compare it to what we're dealing with now with the stay-at-home order, just a little bit, not quite in the same light. But some of us, you know, the first week, we we're all for staying at home, we we're all for following those regulations and flattening the curve. And right about now, a lot of us are really sick of being within the same four walls. I totally understand that. But the way you endure those types of things is with what James preaches, a militant patience, taking upon yourself to be active in your endurance of what we're doing and going through at the moment. This determined endurance has its fruit in another theme that's often addressed in James, which is wholeheartedness versus double-mindedness. Christians are encouraged to have teleos or to be teleos, which is a Greek word sometimes translated as perfection. John's going to talk about this a little bit more later on, but the real translation of it should probably be more like completeness or maturity. There are many virtues that are exemplified by the wholehearted person. These are faithful prayer, thoughtful words, practicing wisdom, and obeying the Word of God. We also have the theme for which this series is named, the theme of faith and works. Many have argued that James does not have the same view of salvation as Paul because he talks so much about works. 
and that he was way too focused on doing things instead of trusting in the grace of God. Luther, from the time of the Reformation, called James an epistle of straw and put it at the end of his New Testament translation. He still thought it was inspired, but he didn't like that James did not talk about grace as much as Paul did. It really bothered him. But it's important we recognize that James is addressing different problems for a different audience. He was talking to Christians who maybe weren't making the connection between faith and the outflow of that faith in works produced by the Holy Spirit. We think that there's a natural connection between believing in Jesus and walking with Jesus, but perhaps the people James was talking to had a problem with that. He's worried that there were a lot of so-called Christians who had the name but couldn't be identified by as being close to Christ by anything other than that name. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio where he plays a con man and he takes on the uniform of a doctor and then at some point a pilot and he looks the part. He even picks up some of the jargon because he's really clever of all of these different roles. But if you were on the operating table and he was the guy who walked in, I doubt you'd be happy with him cutting you open, even if he knew the name of your surgery. And I don't think you'd want to fly anywhere if he was the one piloting the plane. In the same way, there is a difference between somebody who calls their, themselves a Christian and somebody who actually becomes a disciple of Christ which is what James is talking about when he addresses the idea of faith that works. This is a problem we unfortunately know all too well in the United States because we have a lot of people who are nominal Christians, who are Christians because it's what their parents were or because of their, it's their, in their family's culture or even because it feels like a political affiliation or maybe because they want their kids to have good morals. But none of those reasons are the same as giving your life to Jesus. Then, just like today, when all of the comfort and conveniences and all the good things that come from this practice are stripped away, we realize that we have to come face to face with what we actually believe. Are we willing to give Jesus everything we have, even in a time of darkness? Or are we going to back away from that Christian label and that belief that really was just a mental ascent to something instead of a discipleship process? There are many more themes that we could discuss, but we'll leave it at that today. And I want to end with something that Rather than being a theme, Scott McKnight calls a lens through which we can read the book of James. Have you ever heard the Shema? It's uh, something famous from Israel's law. It goes like this. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, which is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha bekol 
levaveja uvekol nashecha uvekol meodecha. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Or as it would be better translated with all everything else you have left, all your very muchness, as my Hebrew teacher once said. James or Yaakov, as his mother would have called him, would have said the Shema every single day. And so would Yeshua. And the Shema was central to a Jewish person's life. It still is. And we can deduce from several references in the epistle that when James talks about the law, he's really talking about this, this core idea that you love and obey God with everything you have. It's also interesting because in 2, 8 through 11, James connects the Shema with what Jesus connected it to. He uses Jesus's own words and says the Shema is connected to love of your neighbor, that this is the second most important commandment. And this is only one of the many places where James references the teachings of Jesus. So with everything we study and learn from the book of James, we see it through this lens, love of God and love of people, which is what he saw as the life of a mature Christian. It's through this love of God and love for others that faith finds its fruit. Because when faith works, it produces a harvest of righteousness, as James writes, which will be a witness to the world and a witness against the powers of darkness and for the power of the resurrected King who rescues us even from the darkness we're going through right now and empowers us to patiently endure until the end. Hello, 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 hello. I just wanted to start out with a story and then we'll relate it all the way through the verses of uh, James chapter one, one through eight. Uh, I don't know about you, but I grew up 10 blocks from the beach in San Francisco. And, uh, and I, I remember like being a kid and always watching the waves come in and go out. And, uh, and I, I just remember this one time that uh, we, would, we were there playing, we were playing, we had bonfires, we were swimming, we were catching crabs, we were fishing, All, a lot of things were going on. And, and I remember we were, we were, one thing about the San Francisco Ocean Beach was that there was a, a lot of, uh, there was a very strong current, a strong undertow. And if you weren't paying attention, you could easily be, you, you could easily be sucked out without even knowing if you weren't paying attention. One time we were playing around and I was with my friend Reese and Eddie and Patrick and we're wrestling around on the water. I don't know if we were playing football, but sure enough, we got pulled out from the shore deep into the ocean. And we were, I, I panicked, man. I was trying to get on top of somebody, trying to push them down so I could get more buoyancy, but I began to freak out, <clears throat> which was the worst thing to do. In those moments, you got to go back 
to your training, what you know, right? Uh, and, and of course, composure took over, and I, I, I was like, all right, you, John, you need to calm down. And, and we started swimming diagonally against, uh, 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 through the waves, because you can't go directly towards the shore. You have to go the long route. And we got to shore, and I was like, oh my gosh, guys, we almost, we almost drowned there. And I doggy paddled all the way, because I wasn't the strongest swimmer. But as I was thinking about the book of James, I wonder if James was at the Sea of Galilee when he was writing this and he was thinking, uh, watching the waves roll in, because he tells us the challenge of faith is not to be a wave, not to be a wave tossed around by the winds and the tides, by outside circumstances, by the current, by the pressure of the day, current ideologies, right? Wealth, selfishness, COVID, right? All these things that we're facing today, James is like, don't be a wave. He's teaching us how to swim when it's hard, teaching us how faith works, right? And through the swells and the tides of life. So I'm gonna just start reading and uh, just read with me. James chapter one, he starts this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. What an opening statement. James is saying, I'm a servant. I, James, am a servant. And, and I don't want you to pass this up because during that time, to say you're a servant, that's kind of very degrading and demeaning. But James wanted to champion the word servant. And, and especially in this culture, this was kind of a strong beginning to a letter because he's aligning himself with his brother, Jesus, right? That who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And he's stating, Caesar's not Lord, like many people would be chanting that during that time. Caesar doesn't save. Caesar is not divine. No, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is kurios, which is divinity in Greek. And, and, and he's saying, and I'm his servant. And if you want, like Hannah was saying, your little brother to believe your God, worship you, become a leader in your movement, there you got to have a resurrection, right? You do. There's no other way and maybe that alone, James's uh, love for Jesus, that alone would be a great defense for the deity of Jesus. Because you've got to be God for your little brother to call, uh, call you Lord and worship you, right? And so this book, it starts out like fire. And he continues boldly all throughout this book. These are bold statements of wisdom. And he says this, verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials, hardships, sufferings of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance, or the word uh, Hannah was saying, the patience, finish its work so that you may be mature, teleos, and complete, not lacking anything. What a countercultural message to today. We are told like hardship is bad, pain is a mistake, sadness can be fixed, and our culture says avoid them, avoid trials. You don't need to go through this. You don't consider it joy. You deserve better, right? Perseverance, what about self-care? 
Seek what makes you happy. Live your best life now. And if, and, and if you look at all the advertisement and all the clickbait, uh, and it plays right into that ideology with life hacks and quick fixes and easy buttons and four ways to lose weight, how to become a, a millionaire overnight, the magic pill, the silver bullet, our cultural wisdom minimizes the value of persistence, patience, and fortitude. And they say, there's a way around that. Now here is the formula, right? That's what our culture says. But James says, consider it joy. Our culture fo focuses on circumstance. God focuses on character building, right? Our culture is about who we are. And James says, but God is about who we are becoming who we're becoming. So consider this, change your perspective. Trials are a part of life. So instead of running from, can we run to God in them? And listen, James's goal is not masochism because sometimes Christians can go, all oh, right, I'm gonna just go through it. I'm gonna say, oh man, I'm good, God, this is great. No, it's not great. It's not masochism, it's maturity. It's maturity. At some point, we gotta deal with it. We can't run from it. Deal with our sin. Deal with our past. Deal with our failures. Deal with our lack of love. And you got to deal with your apathy when you feel empty or dead inside. You got to deal with that. We can't react like a child and say, oh, that's just me. That's just me, right? But we must mature and build patience, resilience, fortitude, endurance. And in the words of Guns N' Roses, Axl Rose, he says, all you need is just a little patience, but the truth is you need a ton of it. You want to go through this life as a disciple of Christ, you need patience. Patience is the key ingredient to most beautiful things, things that matter in life. Your job needs patience, your marriage, your school, your maturity, your wisdom, your faith, patience. In the Greek word, like Hannah was saying, it's not a passive waiting. It's an active enduring. Patience is, is the word. It means to stay or remain under. It's a picture of someone under a heavy load, resolutely saying, I'm staying with this. I'm gonna go through this instead of escaping right away. Think bodybuilding. Don't look at me and think bodybuilding. Think of someone else and think bodybuilding. As you stay under, you're growing, you're getting lean, you're getting mean, you're getting stronger mentally, emotionally, physically, maturing, developing patience muscles so that the next time you go through something, you are not easily, broken next time you don't fall apart consider that who are you becoming the philosopher filio calls patience the queen of all virtues verse 3 because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let that perseverance or that patience finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything Faith is tested through trials, right? And not produced by trials. Think about that. It's, it's tested by trials. Trials reveal the faith we already have. Quarantine reveals what's already in us. It doesn't produce these hard things, that these attitudes or these, this, this thing you're like, oh, I don't like that about myself. It's because it's already been in you. Quarantine didn't produce it. It revealed it. Selfishness versus generosity. 
Are you angry or are you graceful? Are you fearful or are you faithful? Uh, do you lack on purpose? Or when you're going through this, you say, man, I need a mission. I'm on mission. I have a purpose of God and I'm not going to be pushed away from that. Are you apathetic or empathetic, right? Are you, are you self-centered or God's and others-centered? Stop for a moment and consider that. Even right now, consider that. Who are you under fire? Who are you in the storm, in the face of crisis? Because that's who you really are. Who are you when you are squeezed like a sponge? What comes out, right? And, and, and these moments are hard because we are not numb by the hurry we normally, by the busyness of life, right? We have to actually face our marriages, our relationships, and we actually have to look at ourselves in the mirror every day. And we can't buy into our own hype. But consider these moments, who you are. Consider your character. Consider what's in you. And verse 5 says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. It will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, right? Blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is a double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, well, I'll stop the verses there. But do you need wisdom today? Do you need understanding today? James tells us, go to God. God promises us wisdom for all those who will trust him and will come humbly to God. The Holy Spirit will fill you, the spirit of wisdom. And God says this boldly, and James knows this. Jesus taught him it. Ask me, ask me. Jesus says that all the time. Ask me, seek me, knock, right? Right now, a lot of us, we need wisdom. But listen, we need to ask God. Don't, when, and when you're asking God, don't do it lightly. Don't do it nonchalantly. Go with reverence and fear humbly to God. Uh, sometimes American Christianity has this view that somehow we deserve, like, the, the right to come to God, right? But the truth is we can only come to God because the veil was torn. It was only through the sacrifice of Jesus. See, God doesn't owe us anything. Like, oh God, I'm so awesome. This is what I need right now, right? Okay, God, I'm on your team now, but you owe me. Our life is not payback like that. Like you owe me blessing. He doesn't owe you a thing. We need to learn in depth the word reverence, humility, right? Listen, you're not being drafted like in the NBA. We don't come to God with demands. We come humbly we come humbly, just bow down. We better get a truer version of God and understanding of ourselves if we want to come before God. That's maturity, to know God in that way. Proverbs 15, says this, the fear of the Lord is, is, is the instruction for wisdom. It brings wisdom. And before honor comes humility. I love that. Humility is the ability to see God as God. Jesus is not our homeboy. He's not our BFF. He is Lord and we are his servants. That's what James starts with. And, and that's the beginning of wisdom. Think about that. That's the beginning of mature faith. 
One that's not tossed around like a wave, not double-minded, not double-life, one with and out God, right? Church, we must mature in faith. We must mature in faith. I'm going to say it again because I, I, I don't know how badly some of us need to hear this. We must mature in faith. We cannot remain children. Your family needs you to grow up. Your family needs you to mature. A person of stability, a beacon of light, of hope, filled with wisdom. Right now, who's discipling your children right now? For us parents, right? I was thinking about this. When there is no church to go to on Sunday, when sometimes we look at, we're looking for someone else to do the discipleship that we are called to do. Parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, sometimes we gotta take over, right? We are called to mature up so we can disciple the next generation. Our world needs salvation, freedom from sin, and you're the messenger for it. But we gotta be mature. That, and I believe that this is what James is truly pushing. And, and here's what we need to do. I, I gave us three easy steps that are really not easy, right? Because there's no life hack to maturity. Number one, be honest with yourself. This is hard. This is hard. In a time, you got to get to know yourself. You got time now and you can feel things rising to the surface and they're not something that's not you. That's actually in you. Areas we've been ignoring, stuffing down and shutting out. But be honest. Ask like, how, how am I feeling, right? Why am I like this? Why am I so anxious? Why do I need so much validation from everyone else, right? Why do I dread going to this meeting today? Or why am I avoiding people right now? You got to learn yourself in your discomfort, acknowledging both the good and bad, admitting your mistakes, paying attention to your feelings, and then you got to go to someone you trust. And James says that at the end in, in chapter five, and we'll get there, right? But be straightforward. Don't overanalyze. Self-knowledge actually takes discipline and it takes practice. Number two, be honest about your faith. If your faith has been wavering, you got to tell God. You got to own it. You, it's not your family's faith. It's yours. Is my faith on life support? Or am I, have I been on autopilot? Have I, have I been serious about God's call on my life? Have I lived selfishly? Am I hoarding my gifts, my love, my service from my neighbors, from my coworkers, from my church? Would I consider myself a disciple of Jesus, a practitioner, an ambassador? Or have I been tossed around and chasing the world's version of success, the world's version of salvation through my stuff, through riches, and through my attention, right? I know that's tough. And number three, bring all. Now bring all this humbly to God. Tell Him. And it's the word for me is repentance. I believe God more than ever right now is calling us his people, his bride, his church, to repentance, to turn to him. Be completely honest with him. God can handle your good, your bad, your secrets. You got to give it all to him. And then you got to get in a community that can help you grow and get accountable. Get into a life group. If you're not in a life group, get into one. I, I just, I'll put a, an email right down in the comments. But if you need to get into one, say, I need to get into a life group and put it in the comments right now. 
Four, you've got to make a plan. Make a plan. We, ha we have a plan for our money. We have a plan for vacation when this quarantine is over. We have a plan for retirement. We have a plan for college. We have a plan for fitness. Well, you have a plan for what you're going to eat next month, some of you guys. But, but do you have a plan for your maturity in Christ? And if you need help, that's why the church is here. We want to help you. Let us help you. Don't do this alone. Contact us. Tell us, hey, I, I, I want you to help us make a plan. You can email us at info at myhillcity.org or you can just put below, hey, can you help me make a plan? I can help you with next steps. We have people that want to be in your life and help you mature in your discipleship to Christ. Training, encouraging. We all need that. <laughs> look, look, maturity is a discipline in our life, right? It takes discipline. And listen, this is why it's so important. One day, all this is going to end. The quarantine's gonna end and life is gonna go back to normal-ish. I think it's gonna be different on the other side of this, but it's gonna go back to normal-ish where we are just surrounded by busyness. And, uh, but right now, many of us, we have time to do self-work. We do, and God is shining a light into our soul. Don't waste your moment. Don't waste your slowness. This is good. This is a good moment. Listen, in a time of crisis and chaos, people need you. People need you to lead, to rise up, to mature. People need your encouragement, your generosity, and the call of God on your life. They need that. You, we need to move in that. The mission has not changed. There are people far from God who need hope, who need help, who need the gospel, who need new life. And you are the avenue that God is using to bring that hope, that message don't back down now. It's time to jump into the deep end of the pool. And that is what James is inviting us into. Who are you becoming? Because you are the church and the church doors are not closed. They really have been kicked open. You have been deployed. You have been deployed. And that's how I'm going to leave. Uh, and, I, and that's how we're going to set this whole thing up. We're very, very excited. If you're home right now, I want you to do this with me. Collect some juice, get some bread. I want you to break it for your family, whoever you're with, and get your Bible out, open it. Fathers, mothers, open it and read Luke 22, 19 to 20. And it just says this, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke bread and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I want to invite you into communion with God. Then in verse 20, he says this, in the same way he took supper and he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new co covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Every time we come together with our family and we're eating together and you're taking communion, these moments will remind you that one day that we're going to be sitting at a table with God. Think about that. One day that we are, are, are the family of God will be together again and that we will be with God. And, and as we take the, the bread and, and the juice, we are reminded that Jesus has, will be and has always been our sustenance. And so during this time of communion, I pray that we would go from repentance, we would go from praising God for who He is, 
And then we would come together as a community, remembering one another and remembering God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that we get to, Lord God, to hear your message and know that you have given your life for us, God, so that not so that we could hold it to ourselves, Lord God, but like the brokenness of the bread to be broken and to be passed out, Lord God, to pass your love out, Lord, to pass what has been done for us. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray as we take communion, we become the, the act of communion to the rest of our world, to our family, to those people who are scared, who are anxious, who are lost, who are looking for hope today. I pray we know that Jesus really is the answer. And I pray we be bold about it in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.